Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Chandler Benoy. Hey, hey. And also, uh, guest Doug Paul. So, Doug Paul, uh, you may have heard of, he actually does a lot of work with uh, innovation in churches. He works with Catapult, um, lives in Richmond, uh, still connected uh, to a church there past, as a pastor uh, part-time, but wants to stay connected to the local church. He does work with churches, denominations. Um, we'll hear a lot more uh, about him uh, in a few minutes. But the big thing is uh, he does have a new book coming out called Ready or Not. And uh, it's very timely. I don't know if you just turned this thing around <laughs> really fast. I, I or, or. Sort of, yeah. We The plan was actually that it was going to come out in fall of 2021. Oh, wow. And we had a draft that was done in March of this year. And when COVID hit, we kind of hit turbo go. Yeah. <laughs> That's so good. It, it was uh, scheduled uh, a year earlier. It's coming out a year earlier than we were originally talking about. So my first question is, what is it like having a first name and a last name that could be your first name? It's not <laughs> great, if I'm honest with you. Uh, I still, I, I think in every single class I've ever been in, the teacher has always first called me Paul. Uh, and <laughs> really? it usually took a couple of weeks to uh, to break them in that, in fact, my name is not Paul, it's Doug. And so... That still happens with emails. I, I was uh, I was talking with this is uh, with Jeff Christofferson the other day, and, yeah, uh, and he accidentally called me Paul again, and I'm like, <laughs> Jeff, I think we can get over this. Like it's it's okay to call me Doug. I would do that too, though. I mean, I can already tell you, and Chandler would know that uh, working with me all the time, I would mess that up. Uh, there's a there's the, yes, there's so many people that we work with that have. A, a last name that sounds like their first name, but I'm also a guy who, if I um, like a person and their last name is is fun, I'll just call them by their last name. Like we have Andy Dukes on our team, yeah, and both of us will refer to him as Dukes a lot because that's just a fun, just a fun name. We have this guy at our church whose name is Jonathan Chan, and everyone calls him Chan. And his wife was they were all in the same friend group in college, and they all called him Chan. And she's really struggled now that they're married. Like, what do I call him? Because now we share the same <laughs> last name. That's hilarious. <laughs> I have some friends like that as well. It's really funny. If if I was a teacher, it would also frustrate me si slightly or, or just it, in general. Because when I get to your name, I don't know if I've messed up my list or what. Because if there's Doug, Paul or Paul, Doug, I don't know whether I'm going by you know, last name, then first name or first name, the last name. Like that would be really frustrating. Yeah. You could almost see the internal monologue that's happening with that three second pause from <laughs> the name before you to your name and them trying right. to figure out like, is it the role that's screwed up? Is it what's happening here? It's kind of like, you know, when you make a funny a noise and a dog kind of turns its head sideways. I think that's what people look like when they're, when they're going down a list and see your name. All right, Chandler, now you can transition. Fine. I, I will now transition. Well, Doug, not Paul. Uh, you know, you talked about you, you had a draft ready that was supposed to release fall 2021. And of course, like you said, you hit turbo to be able to get it out at a timely manner. So tell us a little bit about ready or not. And then also, did you 
did you kind of change a little bit of the script and maybe some chapters kind of looking at what's happening today and how that's affected how churches innovate? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, with the with the original script, I spent the first six weeks, what, once we decided to press go, reworking a lot of it, and then the next six weeks unwinding what I had done. Um, it was, we, we had started to make it a little bit more COVID-centric, and a lot of the lessons coming from that, and just felt like the book itself was meant to be evergreen. It's pretty timeless, so it's, it's going to explore uh, sort of the way that, in the way that like Malcolm Gladwell would write a book, like how innovation has happened with the people of God in the past and how that provides like a window or an insight into what it could look like going into the future. Cause there are, there are actually universal principles that are at play. And so there, there's a little bit of COVID stuff in there. Um, if for no yeah. other reason that it provides this fascinating test case, it's like, well, <laughs> what if you, what does the church look like when you can't meet? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that's just fascinating. That's one of those hypothetical scenarios you'd set up if you just wanted to like, figure out how to grow the muscles of innovation and yet it's all thrust upon us. Yeah. You were like, I'm looking for some case studies, you know, wonder where they are. And then all of a sudden March hits and you have thousands of thousands, (laughs) like every single church is now a case study. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, uh, that, that was part of the problem was trying to figure out like the happy, the happy balance between the times we find ourselves in, but wanting something that was actually going to last longer. Sure. So what were some of, and we'll get into the questions in just a second, but I'm fascinated by kind of some of the the realizations that you all saw, you know, pastors are listening to this right now thinking, man, we've been innovating for months. You know, what are some, what was like one or two key takeaways that you feel like if you wanted to give a snippet of the book for a pastor, that would be helpful. What would you share with them? I think one of the big ones is that I mean, most, I'm not saying every pastor has gone to seminary, but many pastors have gone to seminary. And there are, there are core competencies, there's core skill sets that every pastor learns. And so we learn to preach, we learn to exegete. Um, you might learn how to run an organization. Uh, you might have learn how to run programs, vision casting, stuff like that. But we don't think of innovation as a skill set. And so I think one of the things that everyone is having a collective aha moment uh, in the church was, I don't know how to pivot. And I don't know how to like rewrite the playbook on the fly. Like when we, when we rewrite playbooks, it usually takes years and we needed days and hours. And so I think the, the big idea around the book is that innovation, particularly for the people of God, is a skill set you can learn. And I think there's like a motorcycle flying by my house and you can probably <laughs> hear that in the background. <laughs> I, love it. I thought that was a sound effect. I thought you were that just, was No, you know, it's, it's not like one of the cool, it's not like one of the cool Zoom backgrounds. Well, <laughs> I was just thinking that, you know, you're saying we have to move faster. So you were... It was just the sound effect. I mean, yeah. No, unfortunately, I'm not that that savvy. All right, <laughs> fine. Well, thanks for thanks for just sharing that takeaway, and, and I'm sure, like you said, pastors are it's it's a core competency that you can learn and a skill that you can learn. So, uh, definitely something that many pastors are really diving into right now. Can I but, can I add a second one to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'd love so, to. I think there is a there is something bigger happening. I mean, like because on one level we're talking about the mechanics of the church and how, how do we, how do we shift very quickly to online? And then once we're online and we feel like we've got some kind of baseline with that, whatever that looks like for your size congregation or the resources that you have, like what, what's coming next. But I think there was a bigger thing that was happening that was like on a spiritual level, there is pastors were seeing that there is a big difference between 
um, church being programs that we run versus church being a group of people that God has entrusted us to lead. And I think that's a, that was a massive shift for many, many pastors. And quite frankly, I hope it's a shift that sticks. Uh, yeah. There's, there's a paradigm shift that we're making. And I, I know you guys have done a lot of, of work talking through COVID uh, on this podcast, so we don't have to go too deep onto that one. But I do think that's a, that's one that I hope sticks around because it, it is, it's providing a, a foundation for what the church can look like as we find the future together. Yeah, it really has. You know, I think you've noticed pastors, you know, sharing that to their, to their church and saying, Hey, this is taking us back to the foundation and the roots of, of our mission. And we're going to refocus on that, which is a good thing. Sadly, sometimes such something like a global pandemic makes us wake up to, man, are we doing too much? Are we really focused on our, on our mission that we've been tasked with? So Unfortunately, it's wrapped up in this COVID-19, but it is a realization that I think we do need to have for sure. And I think it also forces you to ask, was the thing that we were doing working? Because when you, like one of, this is sort of like a working hypothesis that I have right now is that what, what COVID is doing is it's actually, it's um, some of the fog that we sometimes have around wondering whether something are working. It, it's clearing some of the fog because it's showing us who are the people who have the spiritual muscles and the spiritual maturity to lean in even when it's hard versus the people who are nominal Christians at best and are leaning out. And I think you're seeing that in, in just churches all across the Western church right now between those two things. Yeah. So, so you're somewhat like saying, Hey, is the goal changing? Like, are we actually, were we chasing after the wrong goals? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Are we, I mean, we, again, this is one of those things that, you, you all have talked about before, but are we, are we counting the right things? Are we measuring the right things? What are our mission metrics? Yeah. Are those things that are, are when we, when we know what they are, both from a, what we're counting, but also from a qualitative standpoint, because sometimes it can be hard to count transformation. Mm-hmm. Are we, are we seeing the great commission activated in our church or are we just good at running programs? <laughs> yep. So convicting. Now, if you're listening to this and, and this is kind of striking a chord with you, you're going to want to check out ready or not comes out October 6th. So make sure you grab a copy of that. Definitely some fascinating uh, stories wrapped up in that and just uh, cultural analysis. So definitely going to want to check that out. Hey, so yeah, yeah, go on, go on, Todd. I want to ask question one now. Go for it. (laughs) Uh, Question one is always, who are you learning from? But, um, you know, people that write often, uh, you know, that you have to read a lot, or you, in my opinion, you probably should read a lot if you write, um, because one, it makes you a better writer, but two, like you have to draw from several different wells uh, in order. I mean, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. So to some extent, what you're doing is providing commentary and really um, forward thought into whatever it is you're writing about. So my question in looking at who you're learning from would be, hey, what were some of the best books that you um, have thought about, or I'm sorry, processed as you were writing yours? That's a great question. There are, so I'll I'll give two answers, which is a cheat, and I know what it is. Um, The first is it was a, I was learning from a genre. Um, so there's a genre of books and you don't, I don't think that you see many of them in the, the Christian space for leaders. 
And it's sort of the like the pop sociology genre. So we think about like Dan and Chip Heath, uh, David Epstein, yep. uh, Malcolm Gladwell, all, all those yep. sorts of writers. And one of the things that they, right. I think they stumbled on, and I don't, and I'm sure someone smart didn't stumble on it. They did it on purpose was understanding that the, some of the best learning, particularly with paradigm shifts, it's not because you're not having these paradigm shifts and you're not learning how to do something just because you've got A plus B equals C. But those shifts actually happen with the combination of both a little bit of drawing something out and pointing to it, but more specifically through stories. And so if you right. think about the book Outliers by, by Malcolm Gladwell, the book itself mm -hmm. is all it is, is a really simple formula for how, like, why are some people successful and other people aren't? But he could have written that entire book in a single page if, if he was just using that formula. But he was using stories in such a way, not just to draw people in, but to change people's minds. Because if I saw the formula, I'm just going to look at it and I'm going to say, do I accept that or do I reject that? And the fascinating thing about this genre is that the stories are the thing that ultimately shift your mind, but ultimately with paradigm shifts, it has to involve your heart as well. And so I think that that was one, the whole genre, I, I felt like I really wanted to study it because rather than writing a book around innovation that was like, here's a process that you can, you can learn. And there is a process that you can learn. What I wanted to do was to dig into the history and the stories of the people of God to write something that would have, um, that would be able to change both minds and hearts at the same time. So that, I don't think that way. So that was something, one of the, one of the jokes around this process for why it took so long, it took me three years to get <laughs> to where we are, is it took six months to figure out how to write like they do. Like I don't write or think like that, but I was, I felt really committed that that was the way forward with this book. So that's, that's one of the big things that I've been learning. The other one is when you, when you dig down into innovation, there are a couple of books that really stand out and are considered some of the best books on innovation. One of them was by this guy, I think it came out in 97, uh, named Clayton Christensen. Uh, he was at yeah. uh, Harvard's business school called The Innovator's Dilemma. And he actually, yep. he just died recently. And that was an incredibly informative book for how disruptive innovation happens, particularly when you start thinking about social movements and social innovation, which is at the end of the day, that's all the church is. It's a social movement. And we're looking to adapt with the times while being faithful to the gospel at the same time. So that, that was a, that was a really good one for me to, to dig into. I actually got to uh, about six months before he died, he died uh, earlier this year. I was able to spend a little bit of time with him. As it turns out, if you just email people, sometimes they email you back and <laughs> I was like, look, this, this book has been hugely impactful in the way that I think. I wonder if he'd talk to me um, because I'd, I'd seen on his website that he was, he was really interested in applying the stuff that he was learning to the social sector. And so I wanted to run some of my ideas and theories by him. So we had a, a really good, good conversation around that uh, about six months before he passed away. In my experience, um, if, you're, if you're a pastor or church leader and you reach out to somebody in you know, just that business genre or nonprofit genre, um, oftentimes they're just curious. They're because they're, they're super like, curious. Yeah. Earth. I never in a million years thought a pastor would be talking to me about, you know, this. Um, and so, yeah, I would say it will work a lot more often than you think it will. Just if you present, Hey, here's, 
here's why I'm interested in this. And often you're going to have, in my experience, again, you're going to have an opportunity to kind of lace your conversation with the gospel because they don't understand why you're even, why you care. And so if you can relate it back to, Hey, I care because of the gospel. It's, it's also a great opportunity to share your faith as well. Anyway, yeah, sorry. Absolutely. I, I mean, that, that's sort of been my MO for this whole process is just ask the worst thing that someone can do is say no. <laughs> Love it. You know, you mentioned the book Outliers by Gladwell, and, and you mentioned David Epstein. And of course, he has his one of his latest books is Range, yep. um, which which interesting, if you haven't read those two books, uh, somewhat compete <laughs> against theories. So Outliers is saying, of course, the classic 10,000 hour rule, if you just dedicate enough time, you will become great in that area. While Range would say it's actually better to be a generalist than a specialist. And I would just love to hear, because I, I, I totally resonate with the idea of stories changing your heart. And you can, I remember reading a lot of those type of books and those stories come to mind more than the theory or the practice. So how would you, how would you say to take a story and you can easily zoom in on one story and say, this is going to, this type of thinking could take place across all churches or across all spaces how can you take a story and make sure that you're not oversimplifying a concept based upon one story or one scenario in a church? Hey, this, this context, they did these things and they were able to innovate and grow. How do you make sure that that would be the case for you as well and really critically think towards those? Yeah, I, I think the way that we talk about it a little in the book is that you've got paradigms, you've got principles, and you've got practices. And principles are universal. Like they're going to work in all places, all spaces, all time. Like what worked in Luke 10 can work today. But the practices of how those flesh out could be infinite. I th- and I think with, I, I would actually say I, I'm not, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've had a number of different conversations around the, those competing theories. I'm not sure they're completely against each other. I think that, that 10,000 hours that Gladwell talks about, there's a way of thinking about it that is your 10,000 hours as a generalist, where what if your 10,000 hours, another word is like a polymath, where you, you, there are a couple of things that you become really good at, but you're synthesizing those things to create a, one greater skill set that allows you to adapt to any number of environments. Um, I think if, there's this one story in the book that I just love where there is, a, it's, there is, there is the heir apparent for Thomas Edison and he, w- he had gotten the personal invitation. He had scored this uh, really, really high score on this test that Edison had vended that was like the precursor for the SATs. He thought the educational system was actually missing a lot of really bright people who just didn't have access. And so he, uh, he, he invented this test. And this guy took the test and he scored off the charts. And as it turns out, this guy had had uh, been obsessed with Thomas Edison for his entire life. And so he had read all of his biographies. And then he had gotten a bunch of the science books that Edison had, uh, had written and published and then redone all of the experiments on his own. Wow. Um, and so he, he gets invited to his personal laboratory to be Edison's assistant. And he never responds back. He never, he decides he, he just disappears. Um, and the reason was at the same time he was waiting to hear back, he had his first drink and uh, his name was Bill Wilson a lot of people um, might, that, that might jog your memory a little, but he was, uh, he just went down the rabbit hole 
with alcoholism for 14 years and he tried everything he could. I mean, everything. He spent every dime that he had. He spent all of his in-laws money, everything he could until we finally figured out a way to defeat alcoholism, which isn't a perfect solution. Um, but he went on to invent AA. And when you look at like how AA came about, it was Bill Wilson using the laboratory of his own life. And it was all of the techniques that he had learned from Edison at a principal level, but the practice that he was, he was really pushing out to figure out how to defeat alcoholism, it was the same kind of thinking, but with a completely different sector. So he's not trying to invent light bulbs. He's trying to defeat this disease that had completely consumed his life. And then ultimately, more than 150 million people in the last, what, 90 years have been part of AA. I mean, it's just this fascinating story of how learning something in one area can actually translate into another. No, that's a helpful breakdown. And thanks for sharing that story. I, there's so many of those like that that just stick with you and you can take, take it with you. And even for, for pastors listening, you know, I think one thing that, of course, we need to be reading theology and discipleship books and, of course, scripture. But I think that is a good reminder that it is helpful to kind of read across genres, uh, just as you were saying, Doug, kind of reading different areas. And then your laboratory of life, you can take that into your church as you lead and see, here's how they pivoted over here. Here's how they led this organization over here. What could we do to innovate in the space of the church? So just a helpful reminder. Yeah. So there's another book that um, I want to bring into the conversation here. I don't know if you guys have read it or not. Um, it's by Josh Kaufman. I saw him on a TED Talk. And then uh, the book is called The First 20 Hours. And I think that's the, the TED Talk he did. But it was, you know, forget the 10,000 hour rule. You can really learn anything fast. Uh, and he basically deconstructs, you know, complex, the complexity of skills and, uh, and helps you understand, Hey, how can you do this better than 80% of the people out there? And he just really breaks it down. Have you, have either of you heard of it or, or seen that book? I've, I've not, I've, I've heard of it in that I've seen it like in it's recommended to me on Amazon. Um, <laughs> but I have I have not had a chance to read it yet. Well, I would recommend it as well. It's <laughs> great. It's, 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 it's really good. Um, because I was like, this is a joke. And then I, I like, he, he does such a good job of what we're talking about right now, which is, um, he does a compelling story because if I'm remembering cor correctly, he taught himself to play, uh, an instrument in 20 hours. And as he's playing, he's breaking down for you how he learned to play it. And he's like, well, this seems really complex, but it's really just these three chords. And if you know these three chords, you can play 80% of the songs out there. And then he just does, he just goes through it and it is absolutely fascinating. So hmm. Chandler link, let's link to this in the, let's link to that Ted talk in the show notes. Cause even if okay. you don't read the book, you should see the Ted talk. It's really good because you know what we're talking about here when we're talking about innovation is everybody is actually having to learn a lot very fast. And some yeah. of it is more complex than, than others for sure. Yep. Well, we've, we've spent a lot of time on our first question. So we'll move to the second <laughs> one here. So Doug, what is the main point of emphasis for you and, and maybe your leadership team right now? 
Uh, I mean, surviving COVID. Uh, other than that, <laughs> other than that, like like every other person, I think the thing that we're really focusing on right now is helping helping churches or networks learn how to scale. Um, and so that, that's something we I talk about a little bit in the book, but I think sometimes when we, when we think scaling, we're not exactly sure what it means. Like we, we think about maybe it's gotta be a tech startup company that has to scale, but I think it's how do, how do we help people uh, if they've got a breakthrough, how do we scale it so that it reaches its, it's like fullest potential. Um, I think about there's this uh, person that was in my church when I was growing up and he over the, he, he was a dentist and over the course of, I mean, 30 years, this guy discipled hundreds of people in our church. And if you had removed him from the church, I don't know what, the, what would have happened to the church. Um, but he was, I mean, he was not, he wasn't a pastor. He was just someone who really believed that disciples should make disciples. Um, but the problem is that he went, as he was discipling people, he never taught them to do the same for other people. So that the innovation scalability stopped with him. And so you did have hundreds of people that were discipled over a 30 year period, which should is significant. But what would have happened if he got to like second, third, fourth generation, because he had, he had figured out how to simply scale something with those people. So that's, that's one of the things that like as a team, we're, we're spending a lot of time thinking about and, and trying to think, how do we, how do we codify a process that helps uh, churches and denominations and networks uh, scale with a, a lot more ease and without as many resources. And I think the, the reason we're obviously focusing on that now is because everyone is getting a lot more used to Zoom. Um, that doesn't mean that we like it. It just means <laughs> that we're used to it, but we're starting to see some of the potential that I think without COVID, we wouldn't have seen without it. Hmm. That's true. So, I mean, I, I'll even give like one example of that. Um, one of the, like, this is a real in the weeds, nuts and bolts, practical example with churches. When like somewhere between the ages of, let's say, whenever you start having kids. So let's say it's 25, 28, whenever. The next 15 years of your life is dominated by kids. And even if you're one of those parents, it's like, we're not going to be that busy. We're not going to be involved in all the sports or whatever it is. When you throw in nap times and bedtimes and school and homework and all this stuff, it's really difficult to be committed to whatever small group system you have. Um, but one of the things that this has proved is like, well, what if it was a more integrated approach where some of the time it was live and some of the time it was the kids are down and we can hop on line for, you know, 60 minutes, 90 minutes. Otherwise we, we might not have been able to make it. I think that's, that's a, a really small one. We're like, Oh, I can stay involved. Even though from a schedules perspective, it could be really challenging in that 15 year window of time. And normally with, with so many pastors that we work with, it's, it's them saying things like, well, they're just not committed enough. And it's, I think there just might not be enough hours in the day when you have young kids. Hmm. Yeah. Being able to take some of the learnings that we've had during this time. So let's say, you know, a year and a half, whenever that time comes when churches are, and I'm using air quotes back to normal, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, hey, we did, we did groups over Zoom. And I'm sure what you're saying, I mean, I know even in our church, uh, knowing our groups, the biggest concern was childcare. Uh, we, we had to figure that out. Well, if you do it, like you're saying, if you mix learnings and say, Hey, we can actually take these things that we did out of necessity 
and innovate in this space. I love how you're saying, don't just, don't just say we're back to normal. We're going to shut everything that we were doing down before, but there's things that we need to take into that normal and say, we're going to, we're going to change it here. So that's very helpful. Yeah. I mean, even we, we led a bunch of coaching groups uh, for churches that were looking to figure out what's the plan, like really early on in COVID. And one of the things that we try to do is to just give them a little bit of care in the midst of that to help them process their own experiences. And so one of the, uh, one of the sets of questions we had them think about is um, what is it that has been um, given to you because of COVID? So that's really being able to understand what the blessing is, what's been taken away so that you can grieve, but also what do you, what can you take into the future? What's the learning? Hmm. And there is learning. There, there is gold that COVID is, is giving us right now. If we will do a little bit of extra work and I don't mean like tons of time, but if we will do some, a little bit of extra work each week, to think through what have I learned this week from where we are that we can multiply into the future. I think that's a, that's a really critical thing if we're going to think about what the future of the church looks like. And it's just flipping the, the pandemic on its head instead yeah. of saying, what is it taking away? What has it given us? Which is, yep. a, which is probably a healthy way to view it, right? <laughs> Sometimes. 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 <laughs> um, yeah, before hopping on to the podcast, I did look at your, uh, Instagram feed and it's, it's solid in, uh, how you <laughs> feel about the, uh, the pandemic. <laughs> I, it, Do you it, mean that by like all the meats that I smoke on my big green egg? <laughs> no, I, I mean, um, I mean, if 2020 was a scented candle and it's basically oh. uh, a bunch of porta potties that are on fire. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it. if, I think perhaps the best gift that COVID has given us is everyone is increasing their meme game. It is true. <laughs> we were ready for this. Yeah. We were ready for the moment. <laughs> that's some uh, solid okay. research you did. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, no, that's good. There's a couple that I can't mention. So um, <laughs> I'm also, when it comes to coffee, I am a 6F, which is black, blackity black, okay. black on your uh, coffee post. Okay. No. Uh, so when you look at your day-to-day activities, other than, because we always have to say other than, and then half of our guests still answer with a Sunday school answer anyway. We say other than spiritual disciplines, what are a couple of things you uh, have to do daily to stay sharp as a leader? So go. <laughs> go. Other uh, than spiritual disciplines and coffee. Yeah. Well, the first one will sound like a spiritual discipline. It's not. Um, so I've, I'm, I'm, I have a full-time job as an innovation strategist. That's my full-time job, but I'm also, I continue to be a local pastor. Um, not alone. I'm not like leading the church by myself or anything. I'm not the lead pastor anymore. Um, but staying connected in that local church setting for me, is really, really, really important because I see so many people who get into the job of what I do uh, and they're, they end up sharing things that like might've been good 10 years ago, but like they are not the world we live in anymore. And I just have that really strong conviction around that. So when COVID hit the thing, this is, so this is a new daily thing that we've been doing. Um, We've started, we've got a Bible reading plan that we do and at 8.30 on Facebook Live every day, we do morning prayers where we get online and I'll just teach. I'll read whatever the passage was. It's usually somewhere between like 10 and 20 verses. 
And we're working through all the New Testament in 2020. Uh, in our and we've got Old Testament reading with it, and then I'll just teach on it for maybe ten or fifteen minutes and what it has to do with our day and where it is that we find ourselves. That's one that has just been it is it's spiritual, but I think for me as a leader, it's kept me incredibly grounded in a time where I feel really personally dislocated from my local church because I'm not seeing everyone like I normally would see them. I mean, I've got you know the group that I've got that I, I co-lead with my wife with our house church, but I'm not. I mean, we're not seeing everyone for the worship service and all those different things. So that's been a really, really important one. And I don't think I realized how important that would be. I also, six months into doing that every single day at 830 uh, has turned into, I don't, I don't really want to do it anymore. If I'm quite, I want, kind of want that time back. Um, but there is this, it's actually forced me to pray more. Uh, just that, that my heart would be aligned with the heart of what God has for our local church. So that's been a big one. Uh, that is not meant to be a Sunday school answer. It's just where it is. Uh, <laughs> the second one is, and I was doing this pre-COVID, I just, I'll spend five minutes at the end of every day and write what are the, uh, a look at my next day and sort of the to-do list of the week. And like, what's the three most important things I have to get done tomorrow? I'm going to judge mm-hmm. success or failure by whether or not I do these three things. And I think that's been one that's been sort of an organizing principle for my life, which can feel pulled in a million different directions. It helps me, I think, get, make sure I don't get like mission drift, like on a personal level for what I'm doing. And then the third one um, is what I call non-insane time. And from, from six o'clock to eight o'clock every day is it's just with our family. Like we're eating, we're playing games. There are no screens. We're just being together cooking, mm. baths, all that kind of stuff. The <laughs> well, non-sexy you, parts of life. Yeah, there you go. Well, you mentioned, you know, just a great segue into our next question. You talked about kind of family time from that six to eight o'clock hour uh, and definitely trying to lead your family into, you know, time together, intentional time. So, so what are some other aspects of leadership in your home? What does that look like? Uh, my, my first answer is I don't feel we've done a very good job during COVID, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, I think I'm a creature of habit, like a, a serious creature of habit. And for me, it was really uh, disorienting. And the fact that at least in, in our city, in Richmond, where we're at, it's still, you know, threat level midnight uh, with COVID. And so I think there, that, that's been difficult from a parenting because the normal things that I would do or the rhythms that we've got baked in uh, have not completely gone by the wayside, but certainly don't feel as effective uh, when you have kids at home for six and a half months. Um, but there are, there are two things that my wife and I spend a lot of time talking and praying about that we've, that we've done. We talk about how how culture is whatever is normal for a group of people. My wife's a um, a social anthropologist as well, and so we, we spend a lot of time talking about culture, just both by vocation as well as by hobby. And one of the things we talk about is how important rites of passage are for uh, for for any culture, but particularly for kids as they're growing up. And so one of the things that we decided to do is that when 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 each of our kids hit 10 years old, there's going to be a very specific thing that I was going to do with them. And for our, um, our oldest, we, we just finished doing this with her about six months ago. And my second, my, uh, my oldest son, Judah, we're going to start with him in November. 
we do a year where we read through the Bible together and we get up every day at 6 a.m. And from six to seven, we're reading and discussing and praying. And it's a 365 days of doing that thing every single day. And if they do it, as if they have a choice, but we, we you know, we <laughs> phrase it like this. If, if you do this, like do I will, um, the two of us, we're going to go to Israel and we're going to visit the places that we've read about. And so that, that's one way that we're thinking about how do I, how do I really get into the weeds of their spiritual life and just getting to know them and how they think and how they process and the kind of prayers that they have. How do we build that relationship with the Lord as well as with, with me specifically as their dad? And then what does it look like to, to have a prize on the other side of that? And so that's, that's one of the things that we've been doing. It was, it was very different than I thought it was going to be. I had a very idealized version of what that could look like, but we, uh, we crossed the finish line. <laughs> so I, I do think that's a really good segue into our last question being that intentional um, when they turn 10. I mean, here's the thing. If you double that, you get 20. And so what would you tell your 20 year old self about preparing to lead? I mean, when you think of telling yourself often, I know at least I'm thinking about, okay, well, this is what I would say to myself, but I'm also thinking about it from my children aspect. I have four kids and each one of them are different. Um, but at the same time, I'm kind of talking, you know, to my kids when I say, what would I tell my 20 year old self uh, about leadership? So when you what, look back, what's that, what's that like? What a great segue. You just doubled the segue, actually. I, I fumbled it. But what would you tell your 20 year old self about preparing to leave? Uh, man, I, I almost want to bump it up to 25 because I was such a miserable wretch of a human being when I was 20. <laughs> um, le legitimately so. This was, I would say, pre Jesus. And I had found by, at 20 every way to burn my life to the ground relationships and all. Um, by 25, having, having found Jesus, there was a little bit more hope, I think, uh, moving forward. I, so I'm a three on the Enneagram. I don't know. I don't know. Same here. Same here. <laughs> Threes unite. All right. Well, then you'll yep. hopefully really resonate with this. Um, so I, uh, there's this thing that I've termed called the Alexander syndrome. And the idea is, uh, there's that famous quote about Alexander the Great, where when he was 30 years old, he looked out onto all the, the worlds that he had conquered and he wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. And I, I think about how one of the common myths in our culture, and, and specifically in the United States, is that you need to have made your mark by the time you're 30. Um, and so when we look at like some of who, who are our heroes uh, in, in our culture, so many of them were really young when they made their mark, uh, whatever we mean by made their mark. And then I think about uh, as, a, as a young pastor, the things that were shaping me when I was 25, as I was starting to pastor for the very first time, a lot of the leaders who were shaping me, uh, who I was listening to, uh, whether it was podcasts, leadership advice, conferences, whatever it was, were people who had planted churches and had these massive followings by the time they were like 30 or 32 years old. And for whatever reason, there's this thing that dropped into my head that was like, you have to make your mark by that age. Uh, and when I passed 30, there was this almost like melancholy that, that I experienced because I mean, I guess there were some things that I did in those first five years or whatever, but 
I don't know. Um, I certainly hope that 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 the mark that I made by 30 is not the mark that I will make, whatever that even means, you know, like at the end of the day, we're looking for faithfulness to the Lord and what he's called us to do. But I had this conversation when I was 34 with a, with a, you may have heard of this guy named Jeremy Kubitschek. And uh, he, he leads an organization now called Giant Worldwide that, that works with leaders. And the thing that he, he said that was super helpful to me that I wish I could tell my 25-year-old self, that's where the question started. And you said 20, I'm jumping to 25. Is, <laughs> now we're 34, I don't know where we are. Yeah, well, we're, we're just all over the place. This is called nonlinear conversation. <laughs> we are, he said, what if the best ministry of your life happens when you are between the ages of 55 and 75 and everything before 55 is just training? And that was, that was, we, we talked a little bit earlier about paradigm shifts. That was a huge shift for me because it allowed me to think about my life, particularly as a three, very differently. And to think about the experiences I was having, the things God was calling me into, the things that I wanted to learn. And to think about when you are somewhere between the ages of 55 and 75, you've stopped being cool or relevant or... (laughs) Like you're not hip to the hop anymore. Like no one is, is looking at your Instagram feed and like, man, I want to look like or dress like or sound like that guy. But the ability to multiply what the Lord has taught you and the wisdom he's given you is off the charts. And when you think about Paul or Peter, all these, all the, all the, if you study church history, like they're older, they're not younger. And I think that was a, that was a defining conversation for me. And one that I wish I could go back and, and tell my younger self but at the same time, that 34-year-old, like that was a gift to me then. Like it, it actually allowed me to grieve and to move on and to actually apply life almost on a daily basis really differently. Well, Doug, thank you so much for that that answer at the end. Just super convicting, but also just for joining us on the podcast today and just sharing about uh, what you're learning currently, about what you've, what you've written and read or not. And if you're listening to this, you're going to want to go and check out that book. It comes out on October 6th. And we'll see you next week.